would invite you tonight, if you would like, to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. The story about Jesus calming the storm. And tonight I want to talk to you about fear. But I want to talk to you about fear in a different way than maybe you've thought about fear before because I believe that this, that this story teaches us some important things about how fear, when it is focused on God, can bring a new focus to our faith. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, again, we come to you and ask that you would open up your word to us in a new and a fresh way and that you would speak to us, each one of us, individually about particular fear that we may have in our lives and how there are ways in which you want us to give some of those fears to you and, to, and you want to dispel those fears, but yet you also want us to turn in reverence and in awe toward you and to embrace a new kind of faith when we know that we can trust you and that you are an awesome God who is in charge of everything. In your name we pray. Amen. Regarding this story, I bet if we had the disciples up here tonight from heaven, they would probably say, yeah, other than the events that are coming up here pretty soon with, you know, the passion of Christ and the arrest of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, this particular incident when we were out on the lake and the water was running in all around us is probably one of the scariest experiences that we ever had with Christ. And so tonight, we're going to revisit that story and look at what God has to say to us out of this story that begins in verse 35. The beginning of the story, as we will see here in verse 35, kind of seems like business as usual. At the time that this story takes place, we are in the second year of Jesus' ministry where he is actually peaking in his popularity. He is at home in his native area of Galilee and I would say probably having a great time teaching the crowds. And the crowds were very, very large and we know that he had to get into a boat in order to teach because of the way that they were pressing in upon him. And as it says in verse 35 at the beginning of this story, evening was beginning to approach. And even though I have no doubt that this had been an invigorating, exhilarating time for him, Jesus was just plain tired. And I know a lot of you can probably relate to that feeling. And being tired, he was ready for a break. And in verse 35, as, as we've noted already, the beginning of the story says that e that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. They are in, we want to picture this and be sure that we understand that when they got into the boat to get away, to go to the other side of the lake, that this was a medium-sized boat. It wasn't a small rowboat. It was a boat that had been constructed for fishing, and so it was, in many ways, a sturdy and reliable boat. And the lake is probably about 12 by 6 miles, and so there would be a nice boat ride that would be relaxing enough for him to get some rest that also would probably not last too long. And this basin of the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by some lovely hills. I don't know how many of you have been to the Holy Land, but it, there's beautiful hills that you can see, and I remember the time when I visited the Holy Land, you know, they say that there are all these things, a tour guide will tell you all these things survive the time of Christ, since the time of Christ, and you know that isn't true. But I remember one thing that blessed me the time I was on the 
Sea of Galilee was I looked at the hill, Galway, Galilee, and I looked at the hills and I said, I know the hills haven't changed. You know, it do, they don't change that quickly. The shape of those hills, those lovely hills, which behind them to the north also have mountains. But even though it was certainly lovely, this lake also had a downside to it. And it's the kind of thing that we discover, and those of us who are from Michigan understand about lakes. Because these lovely small lakes that are not very deep, with these wonderful hills around them, have a way of having huge gusts of wind that descend suddenly. And when you're in the middle of that lake, it's, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? And I can just imagine that these fishermen that were on this lake were beginning to enjoy themselves, and then all of a sudden, you can imagine, one of them probably said, uh-oh, Peter, do you feel it? He's like, man, yeah, I feel it. Oh, man, I wish we hadn't decided to do this. And just like it indicates in Scripture, it was just that quickly. It was just that quickly, as it says here in verse 37, a furious squall came up, and the waves began to break over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So they were taken by surprise, well, not total surprise, because again, they could feel it. But at least, even if they knew what was coming, there was always a sense in which experiencing this on a lake like this always would be incredibly unnerving. And so it would indeed, indeed have been odd if the disciples would not have been greatly alarmed and genuinely afraid. And so they were very, very justified in their fear, it goes without saying. In fact, Luke's account of this same story says that they were in actual real, real danger. And in the middle of this, in the middle of this incredible experience in which they're having, where surely the boat must sink because there's a man, Peter, this is worse than normal. It feels like we're really going to go down. In fact, the other gospel accounts really dramatizes this and helps us to understand that this really, really was a dire situation. And, and where was Jesus? And what was he doing? Well... Verse 38 says, Jesus was in the stern, or the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. Asleep. My first reaction, the first time I ever heard this story, in fact, I remember hearing it as a child and thinking, Jesus was asleep when they needed his help? That certainly flew in the face of the Jesus that I was taught about. What on earth? You've got to be kidding. And, and that was, of course, their first reaction. Jesus asleep. Jesus seeming to be non-responsive. Well, you know, actually, for disciples who had been following Jesus, the Lord of all, this really should have signaled something different to them. But it didn't. And in a situation like this in our lives where it seems like Jesus is non-responsive, or asleep, it should signal something to us. Because God's absence should not mean that God is not active. In fact, it should signal that there may be a purpose to what we are going through, which at this time is beyond us. You see, we need to understand that God is in charge, and that if he's going to intervene, he will intervene as the faithful God, but it's not always clear how, and it's not always clear when. And when we're in these kinds of scary situations, 
we can be alarmed, but, but we don't want to let that overtake us. The Bible, in fact, has a lot to say to us in general about fear. A common thing one hears is that there are 365 places in the scripture that says fear not. How many of you have heard that? I, but you know what? I, I, don't, I don't know. Dr. Powers, have, have you ever heard that substantiated? You have heard it. You have, no, you haven't. Maybe your next commentary, you ought to investigate that. It's just a little suggestion. Because I don't know, but I'll tell you what, even if we can't prove or substantiate 365 times, which would be one day, you know, a promise for every day, I would say it does still say in Scripture quite a many, quite a few times. And I believe that Scripture gives us these promises, these reassurances, as another way to show how much God loves us and wants to assuage our fears. And in fact, we have a Jesus that came through in that way. Look at verse 39. It says, he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. But I think we need to look a little more deeply at this passage tonight. Um, because I think there's more to say about this passage than the fact that we can be assured in our fear that Jesus is ever with us. And we don't always understand the way in which he operates. I submit to you that the disciples were very close. I don't think they quite got here yet, but they were very close to entering into a kind of fear that could get a hold and a grip on their spirits and could dominate their attitudes in their lives and their attitude toward Jesus. You know, we can have that kind of fear. We can have a kind of fear which moves beyond legitimate alarm. We can have the kind of fear that can breed mistrust, that can breed a lack of confidence, and that in fact can distort situations in our lives. It's the kind of fear that sometimes really sets in and actually can sabotage our hope. It can be extreme enough that in some cases it can bring about further destruction and, and disobedience to the will of God. I mean, hear this now, the attitude and the way in which the disciples were starting to move that direction and maybe what we might say in our lives if we are moving that direction on a part of the verse that I left out. Because verse 38 says, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. But then it says, the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we are drowned? If we drown? I like the King James Version that I grew up with. with. It says, carest thou not that we perish? In other words, what they start to say in places like the Living Bible, Hey, Rabbi, we're going down. We're going to die. You don't seem to care. Now, Jesus took this level of fear that they displayed very seriously. But it was more serious than simply listening and taking care of the situation. He took it seriously enough that in this situation, he didn't just simply calm the storm and reassure them. But look at what he says in verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, he says it here, 
And the Bible also says, fear not to help us to avoid, as we've just pointed out, a paralyzing fear that can disrupt our relationship with God and others. And this story reminds us, again, that we need not drift toward that attitude. In this verse, Jesus uses here the word for fear, which is translated elsewhere as the word cowardice. In fact, Matthew uses this word also. You see, there is a type of shrinking back in cowardly unbelieving that is not tolerated in the Word of God. But in today's world, you play the fear card and you trump everything. You are scared enough and it exempts you from responsibility. If you are the victim, the world is at your feet. How dare anyone question the fact that you are afraid? Well, let's, let's look at some scripture, other scripture that backs up this concern that Jesus expresses to his disciples about being cowardly. In the book of Revelation, for example, after it indicates that Christ sets up his final kingdom, there is the final judgment. Those who are not faithful, have succumbed to the lies of the beast, are thrown into the lake of fire. And it names what characterizes these people in Revelation 21.8. Unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And you're saying, okay, well, what heads that list? I left a word out. The word that is missing that heads that list, that characterizes the people who listen to the lies of the beast, are the ones who fear. Wait a minute. That's not very nice of God. I can't help it if I'm afraid. How could God have that head the list of those who have fallen prey to today's lies? Well, it can happen if you hear the words of Jesus to his disciples, who is concerned that they were moving in a direction in which their fear was going to overtake them and lead them to sin. You see, Jesus challenges his disciples and us today to live in faith and not cowardly fear. Again, because the fruit of non-trusting fear can sometimes even breed resentment and, yes, even hostility. And Paul also confirms that this is something that can be overcome. In fact, must be overcome in living in the power of the Spirit. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and I like this translation better, and of a sound mind. It also indicates in Scripture, too, that a mark of one who knows the fullness of the Holy Spirit is one who does not give in to attitudes that flow from out of cowardly fear. 
The relationship of this fullness of God's spirit is that of confidence that comes from perfect love or love that has been made complete. 1 John 4, 8 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The man who fears is not made perfect in love. The man who fears is not made perfect in love is one who gives in to paranoia. It is a person who is a person who has given in to fear that can also many times cause divisiveness and difficulties in the world in which they live, in the world of people around them because they've allowed fear to grip. Hey, Jesus, I'm afraid that you don't care. In fact, I'm pretty sure that you don't care. So guess what, Jesus? I don't care either. But God says today, I want you to know that I'm in your boat. I want you to trust me. And this is especially important, not just because I care about you and I don't want you to be afraid, but because I know that fear that goes unchecked can lead to sin. But there's one more thing. It's in verse 41. See, after the storm subsides at the command of Jesus, we find these words, some more words about fear that is the reason why I chose Mark's account, because I think Mark brings it back around with regard to fear. Verse 41 says, after Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Verse 41 says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, after this experience, they looked at him and it was not the dominant emotion was not, oh, whew. You know, it wasn't like, Okay, now the storm is calm. We're all right now. Let's break out the hot dogs. John, did you remember to bring the skis? In fact, you know what I think it was like on that boat after this happened? I think you could have heard a pin drop. I don't think anybody said a word until they got to the other side of the lake. Now, other translations will translate this terrified as reverent awe. But you know what? I, I, I'm just going to opt tonight to choose the NIV's translation because I think it brings things full circle. Because I don't think we should water down the fact that they were experiencing some incredible fear. They were in awe related to terror about the awesome, mighty person who is in the boat with them. You see, when you follow this story from start to finish through verse 41, I want to say that I believe we begin to move in verse 41 toward an experience of fear which can actually turn us toward faith. You see, I think the point of this story is not to have faith by getting rid of fear, simply getting rid of fear. The point is to focus our fear on God in awe and reverence toward him and have greater faith as a result. 
You see, I will have greater in faith when I am in awe of him, when I fear him in that way. You see, Jesus is the one who can not only assuage our fear, but in doing so has a claim on our lives as Lord. Revelation 14, 7, doesn't it say, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and springs of water. Fearing God more than anything else, in this sense, puts things in our lives into perspective. Because doesn't Proverbs 1, 7 say, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, See, in our, I think as Christians, in our toolkit, kind of there's like a toolkit that we have where we, we assemble characteristics and aspects, tools that we employ in order to, to keep us effective and to, to keep us where we should be with God. And, well, I just think in the Christian toolbox, this, this correct type of fear, this good fear, this awe, this idea that, hmm, I need to think about what I'm getting ready to do because I fear displeasing my Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who, well, when he has come through in my life, I don't want to disappoint him. Not like, oh, good, he makes everything better. I don't worry about him. He's going to always come through. He does come through. But he's a God we need to fear. That's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And in, and in this toolbox, I fear that for many of us Christians, or I'm concerned that, that there's a tool that is, that is kind of rusty, that needs to be taken out and, and oiled more and, and used more strategically in our lives. And that is the fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, who is in charge and who has, who claim, has claim upon our lives the God on whom we focus our fear. We focus our fear and faith on him and who he is. See, this kind of makes sense when you think about what it says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. John Wesley comments on this verse that we are to live out our salvation carefully and diligently. So again, there, there is a fear we go now, review the beginning of, from the beginning of the story. There, there is a fear that, that God uses to teach us trust that says, there, there, now, it's okay. And, and, and that peace is, is evident sometimes and, and is legitimate at times. And, and, and we, want to, we want to recognize that because I think that when we hear the kind of truth that I just said about cowardly fear, then, then we're afraid to speak up in the church or to our Christian friends because we're afraid they're going to say, Oh, thou unbelieving, fearful coward! Don't do that to somebody. There are times where we need to just be honest and say, You know what? I'm scared. But, but I think sometimes in the church we've given in to that so much that, that we, we also need to recognize, though, at time, that there is a fear to which God says, no, that's, that's really not okay. This is, this is causing a breach in our relationship, and this is wrecking your life. Stop being the victim. Cut it out. We need at times to do inventory, and we need to let God convict us if we have given in to that kind of fear. 
But there is above all, and it's where this story ends, I believe, above all, a fear that is a healthy level of trepidation that comes when we are in awe of him. And this is the idea that we need to embrace most of all. You see, because it really does come down to where you focus your fear. Do I focus it on circumstances, or do I focus it on what I feel are my limitations, or do I really focus it on the one who really is in control and who I fear the most who's got a plan for me? It does really come down to where you focus your fear. It really does. great reverence we want to say to you you really are all that we want <laughs> you are all that we have ever needed go with us tonight Lord and give us confidence give us victory over our fears help us to focus on you the great one who has control of all things and especially our lives when we give ourselves completely to you for it's in the strong name of Jesus we pray